Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Dove. You use all the right skincare products for your face, but your body has been missing out. With new Dove Serum Body Wash, you can give your body the vitamin C glow it's been wanting, the hydration boost it's been craving, and the active skincare ingredients it deserves. It's time for your body care era. New Dove Serum Body Wash. Get Dove or get FOMO. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Hello, I'm Arit Anderson. Welcome back to Growing Greener, the podcast that digs deep into key environmental topics to ask what small steps we can take in our gardens to help make big changes to secure a sustainable future for all of us. Wildlife in the UK is in a frightening decline especially in cities, and the RSPB reports bird numbers and species variety are falling sharply. A 2021 report from the RSPB, using data compiled by the Natural History Museum, listed the UK as the least effective G7 member at protecting nature, the worst country in the G7 for the amount of wildlife and wild spaces lost due to human activity. Globally, the UK was ranked 12th worst of 240 countries and territories. The UK was third from the bottom across all European countries, ahead of only Ireland and Malta. The report stated that nature in the UK is in a perilous state and that the UK now only retains half of its plants and animals. Kate Bradbury is a wildlife gardener, writer and a voice that will be familiar to many Gardeners World magazine podcast listeners. She joins me today to discuss how and why gardeners can play a vital role helping reverse this decline in wildlife. Kate also has some ingenious, innovative and easy suggestions for how you can use your plot, small or big, to help support our feathered friends. Hi, Kate. Really good to see you and welcome to Growing Greener. Hi, Arit. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Absolute pleasure indeed. Indeed it is. But... What is not a pleasure is just hearing those numbers about our wildlife decline. I sometimes read those numbers and think, really, can we be that low in the world in our biodiversity? It's just it's just unbelievable. 
Yeah, I mean, doing what I do for a living, you know, sort of wildlife gardening and writing about wildlife gardening, it's really depressing, but also getting up every day and knowing that my my one job for the day is to make better habitats for wildlife in my garden as well as write about habitats to encourage other people to do so. It does make, make me feel marginally better about all of the declines. I mean, I'm so glad that you're doing it because I think it's one of those things where if we didn't have people like yourself bringing it home to us about, you know, obviously the issues, but the what we can do, we'd be in a real pickle because I think that most people, when they look out their back door or when they're going out in nature, probably don't really see just that decline because it's been so gradual over so many years. And we had that conversation, you know, that classic conversation the other day when you, you'd be in your car as a child and you'd get out, you know, when you'd have to, somebody'd have to clean the windscreen, wouldn't they? That that old thing. And and now trying to explain to, uh, you know, my stepkids, they kind of look at me as if to say, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, oh. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And all of those insects that splatter on the car bonnet and the, and the windscreen, you know, they're all food for species further at the food chain. So all of the swifts and the swallows and the cuckoos and um, so many other migrant species and so, so many insect eaters here, you know, are really, really struggling. It's a problem that, that needs addressing very, very quickly. Kate, you've got to give me some visuals of when you were younger as to how you got so involved in the natural world. <laughs> it wasn't a massive thing for me in childhood, actually. There were some moments in childhood, my, you know, my dad showing me the blue tits in the in the nest box and just, we, you know, we had quite a big garden um, that I was all sort of thrown out in as a child. But my big sort of light bulb moment, if you like, came as I was about... 20 I was in my early 20s and I'd just come out of university and you know you know when you're still a bit useless in your early 20s and you come out of university and my partner at the time was living in a in a shared house with a guy called Johnny they had a duvet tucked behind the sofa for when guests stayed over or when you know people just stayed too late and ended up staying over you know how these things are <laughs> and uh, and the duvet um sort of sat between the sofa and the wall and the wall got a bit damp and the duvet got damp and it got a bit moldy and smelly so rather than doing something sensible like throwing the duvet away or washing the duvet um he just chucked it into the yard <laughs> and it stayed there for ages and then um and then we got a phone call or my, you know my ex got a phone call from the landlord saying if you don't move those bumblebees I will and we were like, what bumblebees? And we all went outside. And sure enough, this red-tailed bumblebee, which I later found out was a red-tailed bumblebee, had made a nest in this duvet. And the neighbours complained. And uh, yeah, sure enough, he was threatening to move it. So I've always been soft. I've always been really, really soft. And I thought, well, that, that can't happen. Um, and so I got in touch with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, who bizarrely, two weeks before, had just launched... And there was a front, they took out a front page in the Independent. And so I'd seen this, you know, front page on the Independent in, you know, in the shop. And so, yeah, I got in touch with them and I said, you know, we've got this bumblebee nest in a duvet. What do we do? And this guy called Ben got back in touch with me and he told me how to move it. He told me how to cut the nest out of the duvet, put it into a shoebox full of moss and grass, seal it up with sellotape and then take it to the allotment. And I did that. I managed to get only two stings. We sort of dressed up in old curtains and things, you know, as a sort of makeshift makeshift beekeeper suit and drove this big bumblebee nest to my allotment and then just completely fell in love. I didn't go anything on the allotment last year. I just used to turn up after work and before work sometimes and just sit and stare at the bees. And I just learned so much. And then I, I was so in love with them that I went out and bought every book on bees 
And then a couple of years later, I got my first job in a gardening magazine and I just talked about bees all the time. And then I started working for Gardeners World and carried on talking about bees all the time (laughs) until they eventually made me their wildlife editor. So, uh, yeah, they, they kind of... That that one moment of Johnny just throwing this duvet into the backyard has sort of set my life in such a very specific way. It's, you know, it's one of those real sort of wow moments. But yes, that was my... That was my awakening into into the wild world. I always have this thing where people say from the design perspective, oh, make sure that you've put in a, a hedgehog hole in the fences. And I'm, I live in sort of greater London. And I remember when I was a child, there's always be a box by the little boiler. I'm like, mother, what's in? Oh, yes, it's the baby hedgehogs that, that, have been, that have been rescued and would be able to sort of sit there, you know, until they would wake up. And you kind of have those memories. Now I think, hmm, if I put a hole in a fence, I'd have to probably still airlift a, a hedgehog in. But the work that you're doing by creating these habitats, you know, you're, you're proving that it does work, that you have to create the habitat first in order for that, you know, whatever that species is to come in, Correct. Absolutely, absolutely. You have to you have to create the entry into the garden first. So the holes under the fence, the the hole under the gates, is absolutely crucial to giving access to these species in the first place, um, and then creating the habitats in, in which they can live. But sort of beyond your garden, you know, we have to accept that it's not just about us and our gardens. It's about connectivity. It's about all the gardens locally. So something I've done recently is set up a hedgehog group in my local neighbourhood, and I did a little talk in the local scout hut, and that to get people to get other people to put holes in their fences and and gates and to just think about hedgehogs to let areas of grass grow long to reduce amounts of paving and and plastic in their gardens to grow more native plants which bring in the caterpillars and the beetles that hedgehogs eat and actually to just think about who these species are before perhaps going into the garden with you know a massive pair of shears or a strimmer or whatever and, and and just you know raising this habitat which so many people do without really thinking about it and thinking of, of who lives there and, and and what life's going to be for them once that habitat's gone yeah i mean we're going to come into sort of more detail of each of those things and there's one thing that i've wanted to be able to get across actually on the podcast and I'd just be interested to see if this is what your thought of it is i just wanted to define what a habitat is because i think sometimes now at the moment those of us that are you know working you know professionally day to day using these terms and sometimes there's so many buzzwords and things that are being used we can almost forget and i like how the national geographic said it so it's quite simple a place where an organism makes its home a habitat meets all the environmental conditions an organism needs to survive for an animal, that means everything it needs to find and gather, food, select a mate and successfully reproduce. The main components of a habitat are about shelter, food source, resting area and somewhere to mate. So I know that sort of sounds really probably basic to you, but I just wanted to get that across to people because, like as you said, if, if you go into the garden and you don't realise, that oh, you might have cut something down because you've made it tidy, that was the food source or... That's where the that particular organism needs to mate on. So I just thought it would be quite good to, to bring that to the fore. Yeah, ha- habitat just means home. And the thing is, Eric, you know, we're all the same. 
The shelter is the house that we live in. It's the umbrella that we use when we go out when it's raining. It's the clothes that we wear to keep us warm. The food is obviously the food that we eat. The water is what we bathe in and drink. And, you know, ultimately all species have the same basic needs. We need food, shelter and water so that we can look after ourselves and so that we can have young and look after them. And that's basically just the main point of life for for everyone. And so our gardens, if we stop looking at our gardens as like an extension of our houses, as something that's, you know, just there to be designed and enjoyed purely for ourselves and actually see it as home for lots of different species, for hedgehogs. Where do the hedgehogs live? For the birds, for the bees, for the butterflies. Then it opens up our minds to the possibility that, you know, every single leaf is a habitat, every single blade of grass, every stone, every log, every little tiny bit of algae growing in your pond, you know, it's all habitat. And I think understanding that is fundamental to successful wildlife gardening, really, and to helping these species increase, which is ultimately what we're all doing this for. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency designed Future Formula, a personalized anti-aging formula prescribed by a dermatology provider to treat fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, and more. Agency has clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than over-the-counter retinol. Future Formula by Agency. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-Y-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. Yeah, that quite literally brings it home. You know, we have to see it like that. I know I was at a talk, I think it was in Malvern or something, earlier in the year, and and just saying to people, so who's at home now? And everybody looked at me like I was some mad person because obviously they were in front of me. And I said, so is there anybody at home? And they were like, no. And I said, exactly. You're not in your garden and it's not your home, but there'll be so much wildlife in there and it was a way I could see a few people really sort of think oh I really hadn't thought of it like that that the garden's always being utilized and it's a way of being able to help us think that we don't live in our gardens we get to view and enjoy them but we don't actually live we live in the house so I think it's really nice you know this home if we think about home that's a nice way of us being able to to think about the wildlife gardening what do you think or have you seen obviously in your experience because you've been you know you've been into gardening and wildlife as a child so where do you think some of the main factors have come from that have contributed to the, the to the state of our UK wildlife at the moment I mean, nationally, you know, the decline of of wildlife isn't caused 
specifically by gardens, it's by habitat loss in the countryside, it's by the industrialisation of farming, it's by pesticide use. We've got lots of issues at the moment with pollutants from animal excrement, you know, leaching into rivers and, and causing fish die-offs and things like that. So it's not just gardens. However, in gardens, if you think about what gardens were like 50 years ago, you know, they were bigger. They had lawns, they had borders. We tended to grow not completely native plants, but but perhaps more native plants than, than now. And, you know, there might be a bit of a mess. There might be a bit of, you know, a shed at the end of the garden, a hole under the shed, you know, stuff like that. Um, if you think of what allotments are like now, that's, that's considered to be what gardens were like about 50 years ago. Um, just minus all the plastic sheeting that people lay down these days to uh, stop weeds. And the thing with gardens is that they're a mosaic habitat. So you've got, you know, your next door neighbour might have a pond, you might have a hedge, you know, they'll make compost heap next door or whatever. And so it's taken time for this mosaic habitat to break down. But bit by bit, people are paving over their gardens um, to park a car or they're covering their lawn with plastic grass because they don't want to mow it anymore. They're opting for low maintenance. I think because generally as a society, we're, we're busier, we work hard. And I think as well, you know, in those in those years where we've seen habitat declines, we're not as closely affiliated with the wildlife. We don't know the wildlife as much, you know. If we, we go to the country, lots of people go to the country to see wildlife. They don't necessarily expect to see it in their homes and gardens. And so if you don't expect to see it and you're not used to seeing it because your next door neighbour might have a paved garden or, you know, several of your neighbours may have paved gardens, then it doesn't click with you that you doing that to your garden will also have an impact. And as I said, bit by bit, we've just gradually just stamped out so much of life, particularly in urban areas. Um, and I live in a very urban area. I've got I've got paved gardens on either side of me. And, you know, there is a real absence of, of birds, and it's really sad. There's loads of birds in the park, which is just two-minute walk away, but they can't they can't make it into the gardens because there's just no habitat for them left, which is really, really sad. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? it you know, it's... I kind of almost, as you were saying that, was going to want to take a bird's eye view of this mosaic because birds or any insect mammal doesn't know about fences and red line boundaries that we have. So let's just imagine so that we can really sort of get a visual going on here. So from your perspective, if I am that bird that's been in the park or just come in from countryside manner, as it were, you know, but I'm coming into this urban area, which is going to be more of a sprawl. What would need to be there How, to sort of take take me through that pathway of a bird coming through the mosaic of the gardens in terms of what should be there? Am I making sense? So most garden birds are birds of the woodland edge. And the woodland edge is a very technical term for the edge of a woodland and the edge of a woodland you haven't got the tall trees you've got smaller shrubby trees you've got areas of long grass you've got wildflowers um you might have things like fallen trees or whatever you know it's provide additional habitats so our gardens are representations of the woodland edge and so what they therefore need is a selection of trees some tall some shorter some shrubby things like hazel and gelder rose so you've got a 
a, a complexity of tree cover or shrubby cover there with different varying heights. That's really important. Areas of long grass, really, really important. If you've never seen a house sparrow strip seeds from long grass, you haven't lived. It's the most gorgeous thing. And it's, you know, it happens in my garden like every day in summer. It's beautiful. But so many people are missing out on that because they mow their lawns. So areas of long grass are important. Somewhere to drink, something to drink and bathe. So yeah, bird baths are okay, but really you want a pond. You know, that's what you get in the wild. That's what you get in nature. And then, you know, masses of other things to eat. So birds, their natural food is caterpillars and aphids and other invertebrates in spring, which they not only eat themselves, but they feed to their young. Then in summer, they continue to eat aphids and, and things like that. Anything they can get their hand of. In summer, there's an abundance or there should be an abundance of insects and invertebrates and, and larvae and all of that stuff. In autumn, they move on to berries and seeds and they take the berries in different um, at different times. So they always start with the rowans and then they move on to um, things like hawthorn and then eventually really late winter. So only now are the ivy berries ripening. So they sort of move on to the ivy berries now just before all of the invertebrate life starts up again. So the woodland edge should provide everything birds need to feed. And that's what we need to look at into our, in our gardens. We need to have more seeds. We need to have more insects. We need to have more berries um, so that they can look after themselves. And then they'll come in. And it's a combination of shelter and food that will bring them in. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely sort of seen the birds because, I, because I'm right in a terrace and probably one of only a few gardens that's got plus more than three tree-stroke shrubs within it, and it's a small garden. And you do have to see them come off of the rooftop, across to the taller trees, come down. Yeah, but it is literally like a ping-pong effect as they come down into the garden. But we don't get as many birds as when I first moved in. And I think, you know, there's definitely more that I need to be doing in my garden. I'm never, ever going to sit here pretending to be Madame Perfect. I wish I was. But I, I was going to ask you, actually, about, therefore, with the food requirement, do you think also the good thing is that people put out bird food, which is important whilst there's shortages, but do you think in a I'm just thinking as you were talking earlier, in a perverse way, it disconnects you because you could almost go, tick, I've done my job. So your garden could be one of those paved gardens or you've seen your neighbour, I mean, I'm, you know, or you've seen your neighbour's gardener who they've put out the bird feeder, but then that's it. And there's, do you think that's also kind of muddies the water a bit? Yeah, I think it really does. And I think also, you know, we really need to start thinking about land use more often. I think the climate and biodiversity crisis is, is really sort of making us realise that land is extremely precious. And so what we're doing to our land outside our back doors, we're mowing the lawns, we're getting rid of aphids and caterpillars, we're not growing the right plants necessarily. And then we're buying in food that's been grown on other land. And that other land, you know, was obviously a habitat for, for species that lived there. And that habitat has been cleared to grow sunflower seeds or, you know, whatever else. So it can be air freighted, usually air freighted, halfway across the world, probably sprayed with pesticides and then put into our bird feeders to feed birds. When you sort of deconstruct what it actually is, I think it makes absolutely no sense that we're, what we're doing. We're destroying habitats here. We're destroying habitats halfway over the world in order to replace the habitats that we're destroying here. Yes, there is a shortage of food. And yes, some birds are benefiting from additional food that we 
put out. But studies have shown, for example, um, with marsh tits and willow tits, that in sort of semi-urban areas or semi-rural areas, feeding the birds gives an advantage to great tits and blue tits, which are bullies, and they bully the marsh tits and the willow tits. So marsh tits and willow tits have declined by something like 97%, whereas the number of blue tits and great tits is going up. And you could say, oh, well, that's a real success because the number of blue tits and great tits is going up. Well, not at the expense of the marsh tits and the willow tits, and that's all because of feeding the birds, so the studies are suggesting at the moment. There's also diseases that are being spread at bird feeders. You know, bird feeders bring in higher concentrations of different types of birds into the garden, which wouldn't necessarily interact with each other in the wild. And so, you know, that's why trichinomosis, for example, which is a, a disease that's affecting finches at the moment, that started in pigeons, that jumped species. And then, you know, as you say, it does disconnect us because you can just put up a bird feeder and think you've done your job. Whereas actually, if you move house or, you know, if you pop your clogs or whatever, that food's not going to be there anymore. What's much, much more important is to plant seeding plants, you know, plant a silver birch, plant a hawthorn, plant a rowan, plant a hazel or a gelder rose, all of these amazing plants that provide not just seed at one time of the year or berries at one time of the year, but provide insects throughout the year for these species to feed on. I mean, I had a chiff chaff in my garden today, which is a very, very urban area for a chiff chaff to come. And they, they, they fly over from Africa. I'm right on the coast. So literally they make land fall and then they hang around my garden for a few days and feed before going off into the country. It's gorgeous. I love it. But it was picking aphids off all of my roses because I've got aphids on my roses and that's what they're there for. And if they weren't there, then that chiff chaff potentially might go hungry, might not make it to the countryside if there wasn't the food there in my garden to sort of help fuel it on its way. So we just need to think about this stuff and just just put the secateurs and the bug spray and all of that stuff down and just enjoy the view rather than constantly trying to control things and, and you know, remove habitats. I remember speaking to a very lovely guy when I was about to start embark on my gardening uh, journey you know he he was very playful in the conversation about you know how it's just an it's an interaction with nature and you know gardening is a little bit of facelifting here and a bit of tweaking there but I think the the gardening certainly um, in the UK and I'm just interested to hear your take on this because recently I traveled to the other side of the pond I was looking I was in America looking almost back on on the UK and realizing how revered gardening is by other nations the, the British gardening and do you think that there's a point now where you know our very Britishness about garden now that control that we have do you think that's the shift that we need to be thinking about that's going to help with um, environmental uh, change and sustainability? I think so. I think we just need to let go a little bit. I think, you know, that whole very regimented, controlled way of gardening is something that, you know, was around in the 1950s when, as a society, we were very controlled and regimented. And, you know, some of those things have stuck. And there's so many wonderful garden designers out there. You know, you see the Chelsea Flower Show, it's getting wilder, it's getting a bit sort of wild around the edges. And that's wonderful to see. But I think that that whole regimented thing of I must remove this, I must tidy this, is still so ingrained into so many people. Not through any fault of their own necessarily, just because it's just there. It's what we've been told to do. We've been told for decades to get rid of dandelions. And we've been told for decades that caterpillars are, are, you know, are going to destroy all of your plants when actually only two or three species will, you know, make holes in your leaves. And there needs to be a shift. There needs to be a societal shift in virtually everything we do, to be honest. But, you know, I think, you know, in this context, very much in, in gardening, 
We just need to let go. The good thing about the garden, you, you love being out in the garden, but it's, it's that, it's, as you say, it's that change in the perspective of what we think gardening is about. Let's talk about the caterpillar thing, okay, as, as one thing, because it's funny how people love a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> they love a butterfly, but they don't, somehow don't want that connection with the caterpillar. Can we just, let's just talk about the stages and what's important, you know, to go from pupae, caterpillar, you know, butterfly, and then what is needed on that on that journey to get from the big reveal of the butterfly? Okay, so I think the first thing to point out to listeners is that there's 55 species of butterfly in the UK. Two of those are so-called cabbage whites. And yes, they will absolutely lay eggs on your cabbages and your other brassicas and those caterpillars will cause absolute mayhem. And if you grow cabbages or cauliflowers, you probably don't like them very much. Other butterflies, the things that we absolutely love to see on our buddleias, you know, the small tortoiseshells, the red admirals, the commas, they feed on nettles. They don't go anywhere near cabbages at all. Um, And most butterfly species are host-specific, so they're food plant-specific, which just means that if you see these lovely colourful butterflies on your buddleia, they are absolutely no threat to your cabbages at all. And the other thing to remember is that cabbage white butterflies, or the the smaller than large white butterfly, are very, very hungry, voracious eaters. Most caterpillars aren't. Most caterpillars just do little tiny nibbles and you don't notice them. If you grow honeysuckle, you will 100% have the 20 plume moth breeding in it and it's got these really tiny pink caterpillars and you will not notice them you won't know they're there but they are there because they're prolific and they'll breed there but you don't notice them because they because they just make little nibbles and they're very small caterpillars um you know the the caterpillars of the orange tip butterfly which breeds on honesty ladies smock and a couple of other ornamental brassicas it just nibbles the flower buds and then pupates, and I've never seen one. I've never seen one, and I look. I look for the eggs, which tiny orange little dots. I look for the caterpillars. I've never seen one. And I think, unfortunately, the cabbage whites give caterpillars a really bad name, um, and your garden is actually full of caterpillars. You just don't notice. Lots of people um, get very upset by what they think are caterpillars, which are actually sawfly larvae. So if you've got rose sawfly, for example, and, you know, it's just another caterpillar to put in the bad caterpillar bin, but that's not even a caterpillar, that's a fly larvae. And again, is it going to kill you roses? No. The birds won't eat those because anything that's really colourful says to the birds, I'm poisonous and you don't really want to eat me very much. But wasps will. Wasps, they will do really, really awful things to sawfly caterpillars and take them back to in pieces to uh, to feed the young um so you know it's just a web of life and so the small tortoiseshell butterfly is still a very common butterfly but it's declined averagely over 75 percent in the last few years 30 40 years so you know to have something that is actually very common it breeds on nettles you get nettles everywhere in sort of long-term decline of 75 percent you know what are we doing that's causing that and where i live i have small tortoiseshell butterflies breeding in the park and every summer the butterflies they lay eggs on the on the park nettles and then the park workers the council workers they come and they strim their nettles down and because they do this and because I know that they do this I rescue all the caterpillars so I raise I last year I raised 200 small tortoiseshell butterflies in my bathroom and I shouldn't have to do that 
we need to grow the food plants. We need to understand the life cycle of these butterflies so that we know when they're laying eggs, when they're caterpillars, when they're pupating. Because a lot of these caterpillars, when they pupate, they disappear. So people think, oh, they've gone now, I'll chop them down. No, you're chopping down the chrysalises. So, you know, if you grow nettles for butterflies, you need to grow them between March and September, which a lot of people don't do. If you grow honesty or if you grow ladies' smock for orange tip butterflies, they actually hibernate in their chrysalis. They hibernate as pupa. So if you grow these plants for the orange tip caterpillars, then they pupate and then they remain on the plant when they pupate through winter. So if you then come along in September, October and you clear up those plants because they're a mess and you put them on the compost heap, you're putting the chrysalises on the compost heap. So we need to we need to do lots of things. We need to grow food plants for these species, but we also absolutely need to understand the life cycles. We need to get to know these species and so that we know how they live and how to protect them. And actually getting to know wildlife and learning how they live is just one of the most gorgeous things you can do with your life. <laughs> it's lovely. Well, you've done I'm it. Still le- <laughs> yeah, done I'm it. still learning. And it makes me very, very happy. And I think it will probably make lots of other people happy too. Well, I think it's looking at something through a different lens because either it can stress you out chasing after them. And I think I remember first gardening myself, you know, of course, you just think it's the textbook of, oh, I go into the garden centre, I pick, you know, you've got armfuls of rose clear and feed and grow and, you know, and, and it, it thankfully didn't take too long before I realised I didn't need all of those things. And as you say, the joy of watching the birds uh, with the aphids on the roses, because that's, that's a classic one for me, because when I left the roses, funnily enough, they weren't getting black spot when I actually left them alone. And then and then it was a case of watching the uh, sparrows, I think it was. You know, they'd pick, they had to have some food off of, of, like the, of, the, of the feeder. But then as soon as that was over... They were straight onto those aphids. And the thing about sparrows is that they have up to three broods a year, you know, with sort of like several chicks in the nest. So, I mean, literally sort of come sort of July, there are no aphids in my garden at all. The the sparrows have stripped them. And, you know, I've got quite a big colony of house sparrows living around here and and they just just descend on the garden and just take every last aphid. And it's amazing to watch. It's that thing, isn't it? It's it's that patience that we've also unfortunately driven out of our day-to-day lives where we want an instant everything you know as a garden designer there's always this low maintenance which I always struggle slightly with those words anyway but uh, you know that 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 makes it quite difficult um one of the things that I did want to touch on because of course you've got so many great books out Kate that people can can read up on and obviously follow you as well on the podcast as well because I know that you've done you've, you have your own podcast which is great so there's more Kate to be had but one thing that has certainly come to the fore after the RSPB uh, wildlife count this year it was brought up again about domestic animals and you know I'm where I'm going the cats so there's an element of uh, obviously creating habitats, but I think we need to talk about, I'll say the elephant in the room, the cat in the room. I'm a cat lover. I absolutely love cats, but I wouldn't have one because of what they do to birds. You know, it's about balance, isn't it? And lots of people say, oh, it's nature. Well, 
humans inviting animals to come and live in our homes um, and then letting them go out and kill loads of birds isn't really nature. It's not part of the natural order of things. It's not part of the food chain. Um, and it's, yeah, it's devastating. Um, and I know lots of people keep their cats in or they keep the cats in at certain times of the year. So around Whitsun, for example, the sort of May, May half term week, if you like, is a real key time to keep cats in because they don't just eat birds they eat mice they eat frogs they eat bats and some of them can be really really expert hunters and you know you never know what you're going to get when you sort of choose your lovely adorable cat but yeah I mean where I live there's 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 cats everywhere and you know I'm sure that as well as the gardens being not as green as they used to be the cats are having a massive dent on the population of birds I just wanted to bring that up because I'm conscious that a lot of people are trying on the one hand to improve things, but just may have forgotten about lovely furry cat, forgetting that part of the chain, as it were, that kind of can have impact. Obviously, we've talked about insects and you know I know that there's all of those wonderful species that we could sit here all day talking about but I just want to get people thinking around within the garden some of those gardening activities that could be literally overnight shifted in terms of some of the practices so the lawn you mentioned that earlier and and I've got a, a podcast on lawns from a wildlife perspective can you just give me a bit of a chat around lawns in the garden I love a short lawn. It's really practical. Um, it feels nice to walk on barefoot. It's not very biodiverse. You will get robins and blackbirds. And if you're lucky, green woodpeckers feeding from it. You'll get ants in it. You'll get the occasional beetle. But generally, when we cut our lawns very short, it removes a lot of the habitat for other species. That's not to say that we shouldn't have short lawns. I think they are, as I said, very practical and they make us feel good as gardeners and they set off the garden, don't they? They make the borders look really nice. But I think in every garden there needs to be room to have a little bit of long grass. It doesn't need to be a lot. And you have just a little bit of long grass. It can be tucked away behind the shed. It can be around your apple tree. It can be, you know, something. It can be a dedicated little meadow. I had long grass in my garden for the last three years and it just didn't work because my garden's so small that I've moved the meadow into the front garden so my front garden is now a glorious wildflower meadow with lots of long grass and my back garden I'm going to keep shorter I'm going to let little tufty bits flourish because I just don't think I could actually bear to mow it every week. But I am going to, I am going to let tufty bits flourish. So, you know, it's going to be a mix. So it's going to be, and you've got different habitats then. So you've got short lawn with bits that are a bit longer and then longer still. You're creating habitats for different species. Um, whereas if it's all short, it's just a you know, couple of species. If it's all long, you've got a couple of species. If you actually have, you know, bits that are short, bits that are sort of medium, bits that are longer, then, then you get a variety of species um, living in there so yes i just think you know have your lawn love your lawn embrace your lawn some mining bees will breed in short lawns and that's absolutely gorgeous to see as well loads of different um spring mining bees and then if you're lucky as well you get the ivy bee in september which which nests in in sort of great aggregations um in a short lawn so i'm not you know i'm not anti-short lawn at all but do let some long grass grow somewhere in your garden it's really important as a habitat for caterpillars of some butterflies some butterflies breeding grasses um as a habitat for little sparrows to take the seeds you know a a larger patch might even shelter a hedgehog and you get things like frogs toads newts you get small mice you get loads of species and yeah it's great 
I was just sort of already, I was in the sort of, in the lawn there as you just describe it all, thinking, oh, that's so, I feel so bad now because I've actually taken out some of my lawn, I've got to be honest with you there, uh, Kate. But I've got, a, I've got a little area that is going to be put over to like a, it's a, I mean, when I say mini, it will be mini wild meadow, but it will be there. It will be there in, instead. One thing about lawns, obviously speaking to your good self, there is no such thing as pest, which is what's lovely, right? There are, there are, in Cape Bradbury's world, we do not have pests. So, chafer grubs. Lovely. Look, have you seen the adults? <laughs> Rose chafers. Oh, my goodness Only me. Cape Bradbury could go, look They're at them. Beautiful. No. <laughs> oh, and just the whirring, the clicky whirring noise they make when they fly over. Oh, they're beautiful. I'd keep chafer grubs as pets if I could. So I'd keep them under my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> I like to see that's it. That's what you should do. Why don't you get a book on uh, <laughs> Kate Bradbury's pets, which is yeah. an anagram of pests. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Depending which way you look at it. But no, I mean, I'm teasing, but I'm saying that because, of course, one man's pet is another man's pest. You know, I think sometimes as well in the garden, people don't understand the mechanism of what that particular insect or animal is doing. So, you know, we have the slugs on that list. We have the wasps. We have the chafer grubs. Do you want to just give me a quick run through of those as to uh, just, just, just to sort of big up some of those pests? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, can, I can't say good things about slugs and snails apart from they're just part of the food chain. You know, they're a pain. And even in my garden where I have lots of habitats in place, I have lots of, you know, natural areas um, it's all one big natural area, to be honest. I still have lots and lots of slugs and snails. There are still plants I don't grow because of the slugs and snails. Well, I'll, I'll big up the slugs, actually, a bit, actually, because we did a piece on it on Gardener's World. And I was slug girl for a day down at Wisley. And actually, there was a conversation around the fact that there, that there are those slugs that, yes, as you say, do the plant damage. But then there's a lot of those slugs that are actually doing a lot of good in the garden. They eat detritus, can I say it, detritus. <laughs> Thank you. Can't get my teeth in. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, that they're actually part of the uh, machine within the garden that is really important. So, uh, so there is a little bit of a big up for them. But yeah, I appreciate what you're saying. So sorry, I, I cut in on you on slugs. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, there are there are lots of different species of slugs. Um, but, you know, the ones that eat our plants are, you know, they, it, is, it is frustrating. I think the thing with chafer grubs is that there's a real tendency, and I get this as well, and I get this as, as a diehard wildlife gardener, is you see an infestation or what you perceive to be an infestation and you panic because you love your garden so much, you love your plant so much, and you think, oh, that's quite a lot of aphids, you know, or, you know, you're going through your compost bin and you find chafer grubs. I've only ever found chafer grubs in my compost heap. So, I mean, where is other people finding them? In their rose roots? What are you doing digging around your roses? You know, is it the leather jackets in the lawn that you're upset about, which provide masses of food for starlings? And just, again, seeing starlings descend on your garden and raiding your lawn. I mean, if you're a lawn lover, then perhaps it's it's not the most exciting thing because it does leave your lawn <laughs> looking a little bit damaged but you know but the lawn will recover the lawn, the lawn will recover will... and the starlings got a really good feed and it's really exciting watching the starlings have their really nice feed from a natural source in your garden so yeah i think i think there's a tendency to panic i think there's a tendency to think oh i don't know what that is it's probably a baddie you know, my dad does it on his allotment. He, he finds these little tiny grubs in around his potatoes and he's like, oh, that's a cutworm, that is. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's just a little grub. Just put it back <laughs> in the soil. Um, and, you know, I think, again, we've been conditioned, and you know, and especially vegetable growers, 
everything's a pest, everything's the enemy. And it's it's really not. I I stand by this. I don't control pests at all on my allotment. And yes, yeah, sometimes I have losses. Sometimes I lose things to slugs and snails. It's very hard to grow beans sometimes and a wet year because I just I get them in the ground and they're eaten straight away. And it is frustrating. But there's other things like carrot fly that doesn't trouble me at all. And I think that because I create these habitats, because I've got lots of long grass, because I've got a pond, because I've got natural processes in place and loads of birds, somehow the food chain works. And so I don't get carrot fly. I have the most perfect carrots and no one can understand why because my allotment's a mess. But maybe it's because my allotment's a mess. I, I mean, you know. It's because, yeah, exactly. Let's like, look at that messy girl's that mm. messy girl's allotment. Yeah. What you talk about, it feels as if it's an idealism of this food chain. But the reality is, is that you are living proof that it works in terms of, you know, and you're, and the good thing about uh, it, Kate, as well, the good thing that you're doing is is really talking about it. I'm passionate about communication and I think that if people are doing good things in the garden and what I'd say to the listeners is that share those, share those insights and share those observations with friends and, you know, write into the magazine, let us know because it gives people confidence doesn't it? it gives more confidence that this is the right way to go it absolutely does and i think as well we need to trust the natural systems in place you know we live on this amazing earth which is made up of so many intricate and interconnected systems which which keep everything ticking over they keep us alive they keep all the other things alive and we need to respect and understand those processes and and have faith in them and those same processes are the same processes that live out in our gardens that we see in our gardens every day you know the bird eating the snail or the slug you know the house sparrows coming in and taking the aphids everything is timed so perfectly you know the moths lay eggs on the leaves and then the april showers just keep those leaves just really gently watered without washing the caterpillars off the leaves it's just all so perfectly timed and you know the caterpillars are really small when the baby blue tits are really small and then as the baby blue tits get bigger the caterpillars get bigger so they can have a bigger meal everything is just it's just so intricate and so perfectly timed and I think as humans sometimes we just need to accept that there are huge things going on around us that have evolved for thousands and thousands of years and they work really really well without us coming in with our secateurs and our shears and our bug spray and our panic. And that actually we'd do well to just sit and watch the show because it's amazing. Oh, well, I can't really top that. <laughs> for once, for once, Anderson's left speechless at the end of the, of the podcast, which is lovely. No, it's so, it's that, you're so right. You're so right. And um, it's just be part of it isn't it? Be, be part of it. I think us humans have uh, managed to somehow disconnect ourselves in so many different ways, but you're absolutely right. Just be part of the show. So, okay, we could crack on talking for so long. We've only touched the tip, tip, tip of the iceberg, I know, but I'm so glad to actually get to spend some time chatting with you, to hear your passion, to see your passion across the uh, airwaves, as it were. And um, it's been really lovely talking to you. So thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you too, Arit. Thank you. You take care. You take care too. Make sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. New episodes will be released every Thursday. 
For more information on everything we've discussed today, go to gardenersworld.com. 